Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. My special guest for your quintessential listening poetry pleasure is Paul Richmond. Few poets can compare to Paul in the beat poetry scene. His numerous accolades include three times being named Beat Poet Laureate by the National Beat Poetry Foundation Incorporated. Paul is also a publisher and has published over 50 authors. He's also a noted poet. Earlier this year, he published his seventh book, Swimming Lessons on the Titanic. Paul, welcome to the program. Good evening. Can you hear me, Michael? Yes, how are you, sir? Yes. Can you hear welcome. me? I can hear you now. Can you hear me? Yes. Well, boy, this is really turning into quite the circus, Michael, <laughs> I must say. Uh, oh, somehow oh. the link that I got from... The link I got from uh, whatever uh, just kind of kept going to a bad gateway, so then I saw there was a phone number. So here we are, not to waste any more time with all that. At least we're on. Unbelievable. Yes, yes, fantastic. I'm so glad that you're with me, that we finally got together. Let me ask you I a question. I am, too. Uh, I just want to throw out a little appreciation to you. I've been listening to the uh, podcast, and, um, you know, just uh, from – uh, I just saw uh, Rich's, I heard Rich's um, uh, thing from uh, Poetry Highway, and uh, just appreciate that you're, uh, there's, you know, all us writers need somebody in the cheering squad for us, so thank you very much for doing that. I appreciate it. I really do. You're a legend in the beat poetry world. Well, I mean, maybe if you, write my, my, if you could write my mother that letter, that would be really great. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's part of the contract. That's part of the contract. Yeah, okay, all right. good. That's good. <laughs> Let's begin this poetic journey. What I want to know okay, from great. you, my friend, is what is poetry yes. to you? What is poetry? Uh, I think poetry, uh, again, this is just only my view. I, I think it's yes. people finding their voice. I think uh, poetry in the past has been people trying to figure out how to say um, what they're feeling, what they see in the world without a lot of, um, rhetoric without a lot of, um, you know, trying to try to con- condense it to a place where, you know, it's conveyed and it's not only just read but somehow felt, mm-hmm. uh, I suppose. And um, so, you know, it's complicated because you know, everyone has their own definition of poetry. Is it supposed yes. to rhyme? Is it supposed to be couplets? Is it supposed to have uh, particular rules? Uh, or, or the, you know, I, I know the beats get criticized a lot of. You know, were they just um, rambling consciousness? Was it prose? Um, and so, you know, everybody has to decide for themselves. I didn't. I mean, essentially, I didn't start out calling myself a, a poet. I I kind of drifted to. I liked the term a spoken word because that's what I felt I was doing. I was using words and I was speaking them. Mm-hmm. And then I found out that really spoken word sometimes gets referred to for religious things or uh, spoken word performance artists. And then sometimes some people come up and say, "Wow, you're a great poet." So. It was kind of in the eyes of the beholder, I guess. All right. So why do you believe 
poetry is important, or why should it be important? Either one of those. Uh, well, poetry has been important, important if you think about how many poets around the world have been arrested, killed, um, jailed. Um, many of them, uh, you know, many of the folk musicians were poets uh, who, you know, just talked about what was going on, the union organizers. Uh, it's important in terms of, again, I think, if you're going to have a strong democracy, then people have to feel that they have a strong voice and that they want to use that voice, and hopefully they're willing to hear other voices. It's just not the fact that you have your voice and now suddenly you're going to be, your voice is what's going to win out, but then everybody has a strong voice and we're all listening, and that we use our collective uh, brains and consciousness to hopefully solve the problems that are facing us. Uh, again, I think poetry attempts to get right at the you know, heart of what it is and tries to express it in a, in a way that people might respond. All right. You know, before we continue, I must ask about beat poetry, that movement. I'm sure you've asked that question a thousand times. What is beat poetry? I know some of the major poets, but tell me more. That's a, that's a good question. That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, I, uh, part of me, to me, it represents a time period when, and we're kind of at that time period again in some ways. I mean, different art forms go through different phrases, uh, you know, phases of, you know, who's the elites, where does it come from? Uh, I think in the 50s there was a sense that it was kind of in the universities only um, snubbed people. And, excuse me, I think poets came out of, and many, uh, because of the sport of women artists, in the sense we hear a lot about the male be poets, but many female artists gave up their, not gave up, offered their studios where they painted to have these loft events which then people were encouraged to come and read their stuff, and um, all voices were welcomed. So in that, I think then, you know, a different kind of writing happened, and it wasn't connected to some university or some, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of, you know, in terms of MFA programs or a particular style of writing. And a lot of the writers were really dealing with things that were happening among, um, you know, their, their community and their friends and their generation. And I think that's right. upheld. I don't think what uh, right now there's a, the the a national beat. There's many beat associations throughout the country, and uh, the National Beat Poetry uh, Society and uh, um, Foundation in Connecticut, who uh, recognized me. I I think uh, Deb Kilday is trying to just focus on that. There's people who uh, are continuing uh, a kind of a uh, if you would call it a tradition or writing, not that they're trying to copy or be Ginsburg or Burroughs or Kerouac or anything, but acknowledge that there was a, a kind of a free-flow writing and, and that they dealt with um, important issues in many ways. Initially, you bristled, it sounds like, at being named a poet. How did you feel about being named, called a beat poet? Uh, interesting. I... Um, uh, well, one of those, it's kind of like sometimes people said, well, did you apply? And I said, no, I didn't really apply. Uh, a lot of these things, I think, to any young artist, you, you know, whatever you want to be seen as, you have to be doing your work out there. And I, I was out there, um, you know, running festivals, doing writings, readings, having um, uh, events. And this organization uh, heard about me doing this and came to my events uh, invited me to some of their events, and we started just, you know, doing a bunch of things. And then all of a sudden, one day, they approached me and said they were, you know, honoring me with this, with the first one, which was the Massachusetts 
a beat poet laureate for two years. Mm-hmm. At first, I I didn't wrestle, but it was kind of like, am I really that? Or you know, and it's it's kind of funny because as you know in this world, uh, all of a sudden people think, oh, you got an award. I guess you must be somebody. Or okay. <laughs> maybe I should look at your write. Maybe I should look at your writing again. You know what I mean? Was it was it any good? Because maybe you know somebody else thought it was good. And so mm-hmm. there's that whole funny thing of you know when do we get known and not known and 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 are we acknowledged? And I kind of was saying that for you know appreciation of uh, this uh, broadcast because. You know, there's a lot of poets on this broadcast being acknowledged, and it's hard sometimes to be acknowledged if you're not going the regular route of maybe getting an MFA or being in a particular magazine or getting a particular publishing thing. There's, you know, there's so many great writers out there, and I'm not saying yes. the other writers aren't who do that who do that route, but there's just a lot of great writers. Uh, I have come since that time of getting that award to realize that I am, I do really lean in that direction, and I had met a number of the beat poets So mm-hmm. uh, at the time, because I was at the University of Buffalo, and I you know, met Ginsburg a couple times, I, I heard um, William Burroughs read live, and a bunch of different things, and so I had some senses of things of what was going on. I, I wrote then, but I didn't, I always thought I wanted to be continued writing, but I didn't you know, know that later on I would really be publishing books and things like that. I had one funny quick story. Is I, when I yes. first tried to read On the Road, I couldn't read it. Um, you know, sometimes things, sometimes things come across you and you, you go, what's the big deal about this? Or why is everybody so much into this? I, a year or two later, somehow I got the book and I was in a car, you know, traveling. And damn, I read it in two days or something or one day. And I thought, so what was that? I, it, was it just the right time now for me to kind of understand what I was trying to read? Or mm-hmm. I was ready for it? You know, so you never know in terms of all that. Well, what was revelatory about the book for you? Uh, at that time, if I can remember, because it was a long time ago, um, yeah. just that it, that it moved. I, I suddenly really recaught, I mean, I'm in a, a band, or you call it, call it a band, I guess. I'm in a project with a, a number of other musicians called Do It Now, mm-hmm. and I do my poetry or spoken word with music with them. And um, I think the more and more I learned about Kerouac and how much the jazz scene, how much that he was in the clubs and how much he was into kind of the sounds of words and talking in such a way. And sometimes beats are mocked by how they talked in terms of cool man and dig it and all this different stuff. But it was kind of all related to um, sounds and beats and coming out of jazz. And so I think suddenly maybe that's what it was I I, I let loose of trying to follow it as a normal book, and I just read it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what changed it in some ways. All right. Would you share a poem for us? Uh, yes. Sorry about that. Um, I thought I'd start out with one that's, uh, uh, I guess, a little more hopeful, and it's called uh, Clouds, Hopes, and Dreams. When you open your eyes, what do you see? Are you in a war zone? Are you in the woods? Are you in a hospital ward? Are you seeing death and destruction? Are you seeing beauty? Yoko Ono said living in Japan after the bombings only wanted to look up into the sky to watch the clouds, see how they changed. It gave her hope that things do change. You can dream. You see dragons, faces, wild horses, whole stories unfold, showing the unfamiliar, the abstract, formations that don't fit in into the neatly defined boxes. The beauty that is shown and washed away, 
There is no holding on, only taking in, appreciating, having to let go, the continuous changes, the darkness, and then the dawn. The clouds passing overhead, here comes a story, here comes a storm, here comes relief from the sun. Look at the beauty, to be overwhelmed, not to be taken for granted, will never be the same. It's all there for us to see. Have you looked up? Do you see? Do you feel the hope? Do you dream? Here comes the clouds. Here comes the clouds. Wow. Do you view yourself as being an optimistic person? Uh, I, yes, I do. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that I uh, can really see how I'm hoping it's going to change. I work for future, direct, uh, future uh, generations in things that I do. Uh, I have been a part of many different kinds of alternative, alternative uh, experiments that maybe only had a flicker for a period of time and some have lasted longer. And I see the light in people's eyes who have been involved in it and know that certain things are possible and that it could change. I mean, I don't know how long we've been talking about stop destroying our environment and yes. why would you want to be poisoning a place where we live and mm-hmm. why dump poisons in the water when we need it. And so sometimes you might lose hope in terms of thinking about, you know, how many times we have to talk about this. When I read that um, story about Yoko Ono, I, I just thought I could imagine when you see the devastation of what happened with the nuclear bombs there, you know, where would you want to look, I guess, wow. up into the sky? Um, yes. And so, and you, and, 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 and you, and, and can there, can you believe that there's a change? Well, you saw that the clouds changed, so you have to grab mm-hmm. onto something to say that, you know, there's hope that, yes, things do change, whether or not it's, you know, within my power or not, the world moves on, you know. Yes. I'm glad you started off with that piece because we need a sense of hopefulness in this world. And I'm going to ask yes. you a question that I usually ask somewhere in the middle or towards the end, but I want to ask this. With so much happening in the world, the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, what do you view as being the role of a poet in modern-day society? Uh, that's interesting. I, I mean, whether it be in modern-day society or any time that a poet is alive, I would say, All right. is, All right. is, uh, is kind of, because uh, I don't know that it's changed or not. I mean, I understand that we're here now in terms of modern. Uh, I find myself in a place where uh, people, sometimes people think that I should go into stand-up. So I say, no, I don't really like the stand-up, you know, um, uh, venues or the scene in terms of I'm not doing one-liners, all these different things. And But I do know that people like to laugh, and I do know mm-hmm. that people in their minds like to see. I mean, sometimes people said to me, one time I did a show, and I, I said afterwards, geez, I'm sorry, I hope I wasn't too much of a downer. And somebody said, oh, no, thank you so much, because... I was thinking I was the only one running those thoughts in my own head. It was really great to hear that you said them out loud, and not only did you say them out loud, but there was an audience here who was, you know, cheering you on. Like, they have those thoughts, too, and it made me feel less alone. And, yes, you're saying the truth. You're, you're telling, and we know that this is the case, and we know it even though maybe we can't change it, but we know it, and we need to keep clear that that's what we know. And we'll wait for the door to open up to figure out how to change it. What was it like for you 
as a spoken word artist, poet, slash poet, to first receive that kind of applause or affirmation when you're on stage? Well, let's see. Uh, I come from a, um, maybe a little differently than most writers because I was a, a professional juggler for maybe 22 years. Oh, wow. And, uh, or maybe somewhere in there, 22, 24 years. <laughs> so why I say that part is that I had stage experience. Okay, okay. And a lot of writers don't, a lot of writers don't have stage experience. They, they're writers and they're in their rooms by themselves. And, and people have experienced people who have great books and don't like to hear them read or they don't read very well. Mm-hmm. And mostly it's because I think people don't realize it's another whole skill. I mean, it's one thing to write the poem Added it, get it to where you really want, and does it really work on the page? And then the next thing is, can you get on a stage, and are you too nervous, and do you not know how to use the mic, and do you not adjust the mic, and do you not know, realize that maybe when you do it live, you may not do it how you do it in the book, because mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't go live that way. It may read that way, but it doesn't go live that way. Um, I, did, uh, I did search to try to find out whether or not my stuff was any guy. I first, uh, when I was starting to write, you know, I was getting a lot of good responses around between my friends and local writings. But then I really decided, no, I'm, I, I found out about the Austin Poetry Festival, the International Festival, and some other really great festivals. Some of them don't, aren't happening anymore. But I went because I wanted to be on stages where nobody knew me. All right. And that particular that particular festival allowed me, like, 10, 12 times at a mic over the number of days that the festival was at, and I really just hit as many mics as I could. And I, that's what really encouraged me once I had all of a sudden people coming up to me who didn't know me and asked me if I had a book, because I didn't have a book at that point, and asked me if I had a book or telling me how they liked it, and then telling me that maybe I should come to another reading. And I did that another year there, and all of a sudden next year I was being asked to be a featured. And so... Mm-hmm. I started to feel like, okay, it's not my own delusion, my own hope. It's not my best friends just telling me, you know, I'm great, you know. Um, and, you know, I mean, if, you're, if, you're, I mean, if your friends are really good friends, they would say, you know, good, but don't, don't, don't give up your day job, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, this is okay. Uh, uh, um, but, you know, but this was really like, okay, nobody owes me anything here. And people are saying, wow, I really, that's that piece about this was it. But I also really learned there that, oh, I could do the same piece to eight times and get eight different reactions. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I suddenly started to really learn that, okay, well, in this setting, that wasn't really what people wanted to hear. I mean, that's the thing. I, I think some people come with set poems sometimes when they go to readings. When I mm-hmm. go to readings, I'm listening to see, now, this is a crowd that wants short poems. Or this is a crowd who's settled in, and, yep, everyone's at tables, and they're cool, and they're okay with a long poem. This, this group doesn't want anything political, whatever it is. And so I'm listening to kind of gauge the audience and pulling my pieces together when I get up there to do it so that I feel like I'm trying to respond to what seems to be going on in the room and my poems that would work for that. Um, some people don't do that, and then they may not get a reaction and then think their poems are bad. And it's like, well, no, I mean – I've had standing ovations on poems, and I had everyone, you know, going to pick up another coffee while we were in the coffee shop. I mean, so, um, it, was, it was it the poem? Was it that person? You know, who knows? Um, but I, you know, I know that the poem worked in other places, and so it's like you you tried to test all that. And you know, and, and, and to be clear, I mean, every artist hopes that you know when you put up the painting 
or something, someone goes, oh, did your dog step on it? You know, whatever it might be, you know, and really feel like, you know, give you some thing like, wow, that's, that moves me, that music moves me, or that poem moves me, or, what, you know, however you want to describe that. So you, because you, you're trying to convey something, and so mm-hmm. I think the important part is that people feel like they uh, get the react, you know, get a response or something with somebody so they can say, yes, you I did convey that emotion, and that's an emotion I share with you, or that's an experience I share with you. You know, I'm wondering, maybe if you've been asked this question before, but what is the relationship between juggling and poetry? (laughs) Um, Well, uh, in juggling, I'll tell you, (laughs) I haven't been asked that question before. Michael, you're really good at pulling. I respond, I was listening to... I was listening to Rick Loop, and he was going, where are you getting these questions from, man? I didn't, nobody ever asked me that one before. No. Um, and I was, I was thinking, boy, I better, I better sit down and get ready here, you know, buckle up, because Michael's going to hit me with something, you know. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Yeah, I'll tell you one thing. When you're on stage and juggling and you drop it, there's no, uh, you know, denying that the ball's on the ground, you know what I mean? And so um, – Nobody knows whether or not you said the wrong word or not. Um, and and so that's kind of an interesting in terms of performance part, you know. I mean, when sometimes when I've performed with my band, or not my band, I would say the musicians who work with me, because it's not like a real, it's different how to describe. But anyways, sometimes they, because it's improvisational music and stuff, and they sometimes stop or they're done with playing. We come to an end and I realize, oh, I had two more stanzas I thought I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And I realized, well, when I got off the stage, people seemed to know what that piece was without those two stanzas. Okay. And okay. so, and sometimes it's because the music did that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think juggling and, uh, I mean, juggling for me wasn't necessarily started out as, okay, I'm going to, I want to become a juggler and I'm going to travel the country and make my living from juggling. Uh, mm-hmm. started out with me being the person who was on the bench and maybe put out in right field and everyone prayed, nobody hit the ball out there, mm-hmm. to me realizing, oh, I could juggle. And, mm-hmm. oh, my mind started to, using my left hand, my right brain and left brain started to talk to each other differently than before, and I noticed it in my other artwork, and then I started to read up on it and realize that it had that connection of, the more that you use the opposite hand or any part of your body that you normally use, you're making that interconnection that doesn't work, you know, happen. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, developing that and having a sense of myself, uh, you know, with poetry, you have to exercise all the different muscles you have to get it yeah. out. And, and it does change you in terms of how you think about words and phrases. And sometimes you think, oh, you know, how many times can I go over a piece and so there's a similarity in terms of that of practice that you will suddenly realize, man, I can keep, you know, that's part of the problem with some people. You can keep adding this for the rest of your life. Or at some point you have to say, fine, it's going out like this. And I know when I see the book, I'll say I want to edit it, you know. Um, I, I had one, I had a really one great experience. Someone had, a, a friend of mine had with uh, Sonia Sanchez, you know, the woman, mm-hmm. black woman. Yes. She yes. had her book, she had her book and she was reading and, they walked behind because they were seeing behind and they felt so relieved that they saw her holding her book with ink marks through lines and things written in the margin. She had changed, you know, and it was like, okay, 
even Sonia is doing it, you know, <laughs> like who said there was rules about this, you know, like a, because because you change, you know, you, how when you wrote it, you might have felt this and maybe now you see, oh, I can actually say that better or I want to say that differently. So in a way that connection is there, not, you know, I had never thought about it, but, but, you know, you're always improving and working on something that's kind of endless. I mean, there was endless well, kinds of tricks you could learn. I'm wondering, Go ahead. Juggling, juggling requires skill. How much skill do you need to be a poet? Uh, I think you develop this. I, I don't know if there's a, a benchmark that you say, oh, well, you've written. I mean, there's the old 10,000 hours on anything, you know, that whole rap that's given that if you do something for 10,000 hours, you know, and pay attention that you'll be good at it. That's mm-hmm. who's to say. Um, it is true that, I mean, I used, when I used to teach juggling, was, I used to say, the first trick you everyone learns is the drop. The second trick, if you don't learn the second trick, you're not going to juggle, and that's picking up the ball. And uh, so lots of people don't, you know, they, as soon as they drop, they go, okay, see, I can't do it. It's like, no, no, gravity is always going to win. You're going to drop, and you'll, keep, you'll juggle if you keep picking it up. Mm-hmm. Well, you'll, keep, you'll write if you keep picking up the pen and keep making time wow. to write. Wow, and nice. the more that you take time to write – and the more that you write and read it and that you read it out loud and that you try to read it in front of other people to hear people say, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, it makes sense or you could have said that, you know, you went on for two hours and I can say that in three minutes. And so, you know, whatever it is, if you pay attention and if you do that work, you, you gain skills. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. So, you know, sometimes I'm not even aware that I'll write something and someone says, wow, you just cranked that out. And I thought, well, I've been doing it for 40 years. I mean, it's like all of a sudden it'll hit me like, oh, yeah, this is something this is new. It's mm-hmm. kind of like I said about the stage. You know, once I had hit probably, I don't know, with the one group I was in, we did a thousand shows oh, wow. over nine years. So, so it was kind of like, you know, walk, walking onto a stage was not like, okay, Everything that's possibly happened of the lights to go on, the mic doesn't work, who knows what oh, yeah. has happened, and you're kind of ready for it, you know, where mm-hmm. other people are, wor- you know, have weird fear or something. So same thing when I pick up a pen now or I, you know, get on my computer and I have a blank sheet of paper in front of me, I have all those attempts of trying to write something, and I don't, you know, I just let happen what's what I'm thinking about. Sometimes it just couple of lines and I'll save it and put it in a folder and then sometimes I'll come back and that turns into a whole piece or I'll find eight lines and eight lines are eight different pieces. And so you build on your, what you're doing and like juggling just because you try for a little bit, if you get discouraged, well, you only tried it for a little bit. I'm not sure where in our society or how it got, you know, that, how did that person, you know, go snowboarding and do a double flip somersault and, make it look like, yeah, I do this every day. Well, see how many times other people broke their necks or did all kinds of things. You know, it's like it takes a lot of times of doing it over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much, you know, what happens with juggling. You, you do it over and over and over again until I can do it standing in front of you looking at you, and I'm doing it. doesn't mean I'm not looking or I'm not seeing, but I'm not throwing, I'm not throwing the balls across the room. You know what I mean? I'm throwing them to me. I'm the one juggling. So. Um, in terms of writing, you know, you, you, you build those skills and, you know, you'll know, and people will give you the feedback. I mean, it's just like when you got on a stage of my, my early days of juggling, 
I didn't mm-hmm. get much response. I was trying to figure out what to do. I didn't have the presence, you know, as I built that up, you know, over the 20 years, you know, I could know that, you know, I could deal with a crowd and try to get the crowd to connect to me. And I took classes about it and all kinds of things like that, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Tell me about an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power. Listen, uh, Michael, I only usually talk about these things in therapy, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I, 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 well, I, I think that it's funny because I, I feel like um, it was rock and roll music or it was um, – the words that came on, they came, they kind of were like letters to me from somewhere else that something else was going on. Mm-hmm. So early on, the Doors or Dylan or various people, I suddenly realized Frank Snap. I mean, suddenly that they weren't doing songs. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I you know, I loved the beat when the Beatles came out, but they weren't songs that were going on. I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. There was long phrases or they were talking about something or they were making commentary on something or it was something else that was like, Oh, what are they talking about? And that sort of hit me that, Oh, that this has an effect on, I'm, I'm relating to them. The words are important to me. Uh, And then it was, you know, seeing particular writers or being, uh, I was, you know, like I said, I was fortunate that the university of Buffalo, Robert Creeley was there and a bunch of other people. And, the English department really wanted to be known, so they brought, you know, Ginsburg and I said Burroughs, these various people there, and we got to hear them. And so we suddenly, you know, that was kind of like, oh, there's people who come and just do, you know, can actually hold a room by just talking, you know, but they're not talking. They're these are pieces, or these are, you know, so it was a whole combination of all those things. That again, I didn't maybe necessarily just frame it that I thought it was poetry that was being powerful. It was more that words could have power. Very nice. Please share another poem. Okay. Uh, Let me see if I can uh, find one here that it makes sense to uh, do. Uh, Here, I'll do... uh, You may have had some technical difficulty. Paul should join us again shortly. This is life, and you never know what can happen. It's a crapshoot sometimes. It's a crapshoot. Until he returns, let's listen to Heartbreaking by Kevin. Kevin. All right, Paul is back. I thought, please, I didn't, I didn't think that poem was so bad. You, you hung up on me. You hung up on me. I didn't hang up on you. I was here. I okay. okay, I was like, okay, Michael, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to read that poem. All right, I had to practice my DJ skills <laughs> and find a piece of music. <laughs> yeah, okay. I was right, kind of like, okay. Okay, <laughs> okay man, go ahead. <laughs> Okay, we lost Paul again. I'm going to put on my DJ hat one more time, and we're going to listen to Kevin. (laughs) By Kevin. Heartbreaking. 
All right. I think Kev. No, Kevin's not here. <laughs> oh, 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 Paul is here. Hold on. Hold on. I'm getting a little, I'm getting a little paranoid here. I don't, I, don't, I don't know why this is happening. It's never, with so many things that happened over the years, but this one has never happened before. <laughs> Wait a minute. I, I'm having a first with you on a couple of the last one we had. This one, Michael. You remember? We have to look into this. I'm going to start reading the poem really fast here right, to yeah, please, make sure please, this works. Please make it, make it quick. <laughs> Otherwise, who knows? Who knows whether we'll get through it or not, right? Don't read a long one. <laughs> Don't read a long one. Okay, hold it. Let me find a shorter one. I'll read a, part, a shorter one. Let, you can let me find a shorter poem. one. <laughs> I'll, I'll find a shorter one. All right. Uh, let's see. Here, here, I'll read this. I'll read this one. This is a shorter one. Uh, smokers die younger. There was a no smoking sign that said smokers die younger. And I looked around the room visiting a nursing home. Many hunched over, drooling, others crying out. I noticed Mr. Jones was trying to escape, trying to aim his wheelchair towards the open door. Howard, his best friend, tried to help by throwing his food to the ground as a distraction. I saw the pack of cigarettes left on the table by someone from the last shift. I looked back up at the sign, smokers die younger. I saw Mr. Jones made it through the door. I have never smoked. I reached for the pack. And I decided to light up too. Michael, did I lose it? <laughs> you done? <laughs> I'm done. I can, I can I can do another short one if you want. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> I didn't have time to to get situated, Paul. You know, <laughs> my mind did not have time <laughs> to return back to being a host from being a DJ. So what I'd like yeah. you to do <laughs> yeah. is to share that piece again, please. Okay, wait a minute. So I just put that book down, so let me try to open that book up again. All right, man. Uh, so we can get this. We'll, we'll kind of uh, chit-chat as I try to yes, find that yes. piece again. All right, go. yes. I, 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 I have a feeling that uh, this is kind of uh, what's happening there, whether or not I will find it or not. So it's, it's part of the whole thing. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's part of the whole quintessential listening poetry experience. I'm not sure that I, I've seen that you've had this with other guests, but I, you know, I'm glad, I'm, glad you're, I'm glad you're treating me special here, Michael. I don't, you know, but here we go. I found it. I found okay, it. Great, great. <laughs> Smoke, smokers die younger. There was a no smoking sign that said smokers die younger. As I looked around the room, visiting a nursing home, many hunched over, drooling, others just crying out, I noticed Mr. Jones was trying to escape, trying to aim his wheelchair towards the open door. Howard, his best friend, tried to help by throwing his food to the ground as a distraction. I saw a pack of cigarettes left on the table by someone from the last shift. I looked back up at the sign, smokers die younger. I saw Mr. Jones make it through the door. I have never smoked. I reached for the pack, and I decided to light up, too. Oh, my friend, what is the purpose of that piece? What's the purpose of it? To make, to make us all depressed. Um, let's see. Um. <laughs> We're not going to make it through this, Paul. We're not going to make it through this. The purpose of that piece. Yeah, well, that's a good one. Um, 
I think it was trying to capture a whole scene. Um, I mean, I, I did hospice for my parents for two years mm-hmm. at home and then in hospice. And, you know, just seeing, okay, just unfortunate about how, you know, it's not rocket science. We're all going to need facilities that can facilitate us not walking, taking shot, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And how has it turned into this of the kind of places that some of the nursing homes are? All right. And this isn't against many of the workers who try very hard. It's more the money folks who run some of those places and what goes on and the kind of service. And sometimes when you're there, you just go, really, is this, you know, do I want to make it to them, actually? You know, I mean, sometimes you're like, you know, eat healthy and live long and, and somebody said, well, you ate so many vegetables, you ended up in the senior home. You know, I said, well, okay, yes. um, mm-hmm. I guess that's good. Um, and then I, I was visiting one time, and I saw the sign, and I thought, wow, what a, what a sign to have here in the nursing home. I guess this is for the relatives visiting or something. And, but you could come here and go, really, you die short, you know, earlier if you smoke? Well, you know, while I'm sitting here, I might think about doing that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So it was just trying to kind of acknowledge all of that, if possible, in a short little vignette, you know. Is a poem letting your guard down or building a wall, my friend? I, I heard you ask this question. I heard, I kind of like uh, Rick Singer said it could be both. I mean, you're, I don't know about ever building a wall. I mean, it depends on okay. what you mean by building a wall. Um, I mean, I, I mean, you are always letting you're letting people into who you are, or you're also, you know, sometimes people, I will do something and people say, wow, that's what you did. And I said, well, no, I didn't actually do that. This is a composition of four friends or something. And I then added what I saw in the paper. And, you know, so that's the poem. And, but you think it's about my life. So, you know, and many people I've talked to, you know, their partners go, oh, great. Now everybody thinks that I'm a bitch or, you know, I'm this mm-hmm. or I'm that because I'm your partner, you know. And it's like, well, no, you're just, you were just talking about relationships in a moment that happened. So, you know, I th- you have to let your guard down with yourself mm-hmm. uh, to open up to hear what you're really thinking about. Um, if you were to talk about, when I think about building walls, it usually is to keep out okay. or to keep in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like keep out or keep in. And as a writer, you know, I think you're attempting to break down walls. You you don't you're not trying to keep in or keep out. You're not keeping out information. You're not keeping out experiences. You're not keeping out listen, you no know, reading other poets to try to get better ideas about it all. So you know, or styles. So building the wall part doesn't. I, you know, I don't really relate to in terms of that it would be that choice or the other choice. It's it's a two different things. I mean, you definitely regard or who you are comes down for you to know who you are. You have to let go of, you know, being worried about really seeing who you are and acknowledge that. You know, I enjoy listening to you talk. I really do. And I want to know, what does poetry writing do to you as a thinker? You're a great thinker to me. What does it do to you as a thinker? Uh, Well, it made me unemployed. (laughs) <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, well, I mean, I think anything that you, like I said, juggling any art form, 
think helps open up your sense of how you see the world. So I'll tell you one uh, interesting first writing experience that actually helped change me uh, was Mm -hmm. me fighting the draft for Vietnam. All right, then. So I'll try to do this really quickly. Um, I went to this – I found out about a place on FM radio when FM radio was not commercialized at all. People came with their albums, and we were listening to albums then, and they could play four hours and not say anything. And one night through three in the morning or something, they – gave out a phone number if you needed help with the draft or you didn't want to go in. My number was 78, so I was being drafted. I did get drafted. I did find these people, but the short part to get to the writing was at one point they gave me the conscientious objectors five questions and asked me to write about it. Just not even though I wasn't going for it, but just to get my thoughts going. Well, I realized uh, I had never, nobody had ever really asked me my thoughts. So in the beginning, I said, well, there's God, and you know, I wrote the whole thing out. And they went, But the interesting part that they did is when I got there, they would just take whatever I wrote and read it out loud. And I could have said, I believe in green frogs, and once they get kissed by the princess, they turn into princes, and that's how we have you know, the royalty and blah, blah, blah. You know? And after they would read it, they would say, well, is that what you believe? And when I heard back what I said, I wrote, I said, well, I mean, that's the stories I've been told all my life. There's Jesus or this or that or whatever it was. I mean, I don't, well, what do you believe? And so um, through the two and a half years of me fighting the draft, I did that a lot with them. And that process um, really had me questioning and had me opening up and had me realize sometimes I didn't have words for what I was thinking about, but I would try to express what it was and, Yes, I would want to defend my mother if someone was trying to hurt them, but I didn't want to go out and just kill people because I was told they were my enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I had never really crystallized all my beliefs besides, you know, oh, well, you know, it may be a sin or something or whatever religious bag. I, I actually had both religions, Catholic and, and Judaism, to some degree, not really. My father was hiding that his parent, his side was Jewish and, we were just told we were Polish Catholics, and so, and we got brought up in the Catholic Church, and I did First Communion, and I did the whole nine yards, and at some point I didn't want to be there anymore, and so uh, it's a whole other story. But that process with those guys in the draft had me see the power of me trying to put my thoughts into words, and then listening to my words, and just having someone, not with judgment, but just asking me, if, you know, if this is what you believe, that's fine. If you believe in green frogs, and that's what you believe in, but, you know, I'm, you know, is that what you believe in? And so that was a very powerful experience that started me on writing journals and trying to get out what I was feeling. All right, very nice. Please share another piece. Okay, so let me see. Do we want to stay on the senior home theme or should we move on? Here? Whatever you like, uh, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let me get another one from this book here. Let's see. Um, hey, what about one from Swimming Lessons on the Titanic? Because we're going to turn to that next. Okay, uh, this, uh, so I just picked that up, and so that's what I was looking through. Oh, to do fantastic. One Synchronicity, all right. Okay, I, I'll read this one. It's called um, Firing Squad. <clears throat> I was asked, did I want a blindfold? Did I want to say anything since I only had one last request before the firing squad was giving their orders? 
I said I did want to say something to those who were going to kill me. As they all stood in a straight line, guns raised, pointed at me, I took my time to look each of them in the eye, and one of them lowered their guns to their side. I started talking. I told them I wanted to tell them a little about myself. I would skip over the night my mother and father made love. I wouldn't bore them with the cuteness of me as a baby those first few years, how even me hiding behind the door and crapping in my pants my mother remembers fondly. I wouldn't bore them with my anxieties of the youth. Instead, let me tell you how beautiful life is, the eating of good foods. I described one of my specialties, and maybe they would like me to make some food for them. When I got to the desserts, another man lowered his gun. I talked philosophy and religion, how we are all one, and another one lowered his gun. I brought up my love for my dogs and cats. I talked about my favorite dog and one of my smartest cats, and another one lowered his gun. I talked of family and being there for those who I love, who loved me, and I asked if they wanted to see photos of my grandchildren, and another lowered his gun. There, are still, there was still one who had his gun raised, still pointing at me. Would he shoot even if he hadn't been given the order, thinking he was saving the world from my kind? With him, I knew I had to appeal to his soul, so I said that I could make him a lot of money. I knew the secret of how to make water into wine. Excuse me, with his help, we could make more money than either of us imagined possible. If I could, I would make us all some wine right now, and we could celebrate. He had looked up from his gun, but he was still pointing it at me, and I knew his soul needed more, so I offered a 7.30 split, giving him 70%. He lowered his gun. At that moment, the captain who had been standing next to me took out his gun. His brother owns the local winery and doesn't like competition. As he raised his gun to shoot me, the first fellow in the firing squad had raised his gun and shot the captain. As he went to shoot me, the captain was pushed back by the bullet hitting him, having him raise his hand a bit, and instead of blowing off my head, he blew off my favorite hat. Years later, I questioned my decision to talk to the firing squad, for I am here cooking endless meals for these guys, and I'm always behind in making of the wine. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's all I can say. Let's take a short break. Well, at least, you didn't, at, least, at least you didn't hang up on me, Michael. That was <laughs> no, good. No. So, <laughs> Let's take a short break. <laughs> and we'll be right back. <laughs> all right. We are back. My name is Michael Anthony oh. Ingram. <laughs> and I am We're here back. Paul. <laughs> I had to We're put back, you on call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
this is Paul Richmond, everybody. <laughs> this is Paul Richmond. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? How you and, doing? Oh, this is Paul Richmond. <laughs> you have published <laughs> seven books, and you just read from Swimming Lessons on the Titanic. Let's talk about that title and also what inspired the book. What inspired you to write that one? Uh... Well, let's see. I mean, again, I am always writing, and I'm always creating folders and throwing things in. Uh, I ran various titles, and and somehow the t- I was seeing some stuff coming up on the Titanic, and it goes back to our our sense about hope or not. You know what I mean? All right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I thought, okay, you know, if somebody knew something was happening, and they found out people didn't know how to swim, would you start to try to give swimming lessons in the Titanic? I mean. Mm-hmm. Is that the sense of hope? I mean, I did. There, there's a thing written on the back that I suppose says some of it. It says this: the ship is sinking. The captain's lifeboat left long ago. The water lapping at your ankles is rising. Many have made their way to the bar. I have decided to give swimming lessons. I am hopeful. I I hope to make a few dollars. Wow. That's 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 powerful because. It makes, as I think about your writing so far, what I've heard so far, you attempt to find joy in the weariness of life. Correct me if I'm wrong. In, 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 what, in the what, the weariness? Yes. Okay. If you attempt to find joy in the weariness of life. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, or, you know, it's also just, yeah, I guess weariness is kind of, you know, are we going to make or what's going to happen? I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's the kind of situations in which you go, you know, really or to make you discouraged. And I think there's humor in it all to some degree. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the, or I sometimes say the cosmos has a very strange sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know much to say in terms of that. These, these all just That's came right. together, and I sort of felt like some some of them had a similar kinds of themes to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what are some of the want, I can read. Yeah, what are some Go of ahead. the themes? What are some of the themes? The predominant themes in the book. Uh, well, I have this one called uh, "Grocery Bagging at 70. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. <laughs> I can read that one and see. Um, well, do this for me. Give me the titles of five of the poems in the book. Just choose five titles. Okay, let me get to the table of contents there, and uh, all right, I'll give you five, I'll give you five titles. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, Billy deserved it. <laughs> uh, family traditions. I mentioned grocery bagging at 70. Yes. <laughs> uh, time I met Hunter Thompson. Uh, let's see. Uh, who works for who? I guess that's fine. Patron saint mm-hmm. of boss causes. All right, all right. What role should a title play in a poem? Well, it's interesting because sometimes I, like I said, I will come up with um, – you know, I've written maybe four lines, and then for some reason, the next time I come to that file, you know, another 50 lines just happen because of mm-hmm. those four lines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. I will 
I'll do a title, and then I'll look at it and I'll think, well, the title's kind of giving it away too much, or the title's the last line, or the title, maybe the title needs, the title needs is actually the first line because it needs, from there on, it reacts off to the title. Mm-hmm. So the titles to me vary with each piece depending on, you know, whether or not I feel that the piece needs to be described or it's the essence of what it was about it or it's the twist that has nothing to do with anything that's been said, so the title's kind of off from that, you know what I mean? And um, so that's kind of where I would go with that with the title. So all right, all right. Please share a poem, man. Speak to us. Uh, okay. Uh, any one of those from the five, I yes, guess? Yes, the one that. about bagging groceries at 70. I, I'm approaching that number, so bagging groceries at 70. <laughs> okay, let me uh, let me get to that one. I can see what page it's on. I'll go there. Okay, I'm not uh, really approaching okay. that number, everybody. I'm just saying that. That's just a statement. All right. Yeah, you, 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 you know people who are approaching that number. I've seen movies of people with that number. Right now. <laughs> right, that's right. I've heard about it. All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is uh, grocery bagging at 70. Yes. Applying at my local grocery store to bag groceries at 70. On the application, I wrote down I was an artist, a poet, a performer, and I performed at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, crisscrossed the United States, featured at festivals on main stages, traveled internationally. I performed in Sweden, Hungary, Senegal. At the interview, I was asked, do I know not to put eggs on the bottom? (laughs) Then I know that tomatoes can get crushed by cans. Then I know that putting all cold items together help keep them cold and to not put them on top of peaches. Then I know to bag fish and meat so their bacteria stayed separate from the other foods. Then I know not to put bread and baked items on the bottom. Finally, could I manage to have only two bathroom breaks and no snacks? On a trial run, I was way over time on bagging a mock-up grocery sale. I was told not to spend so much time trying to arrange things artistically, that color coordination didn't matter. After a few days of training, I was ready for the front lines, where I was told not to talk to the customers. They weren't interested in hearing my poems. I was told not to tell people not to buy items I thought were bad for them. It was not my business if someone was only buying gallons of ice cream, donuts, and cases of soda, and especially not to mention that the items were cheaper down the block. I lasted long enough to finally meet Mrs. Jones, the day she chose my register to check out. I had seen her walking her dog around the loop at our assistant living complex. Here she was handing me her homemade cloth bag. Our eyes met. I knew this was fate bringing us together. Grateful for this opportunity to meet, as I put her groceries in her bag, I whispered my recipes for her tomatoes, zucchinis, and hot peppers. That was the last bag of groceries I bagged. I was fired. That evening, I celebrated with a scrumptious meal while I read her my poetry and she read me hers. Wow. You know, I really resonated with that piece. It reminded me of a story. I traveled home to North Carolina to 
to visit my dad, who's aging, of course. And we were all together, all my siblings, we were all together. And he yelled across the room at me. He said, Michael. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> Did you ever finish that doctoral degree? <laughs> and my sister said, Dad, he finished it 30 years ago. He said, well, what did you ever do with it? So <laughs> something about so, that so you, so you said you told him he started fires or what happened? <laughs> <laughs> no. Here you had traveled and seen the world. You see what I'm saying? And yes. all, you, all they wanted you to do was to bag the groceries. I don't know why I equated those two together. <laughs> But that's what came to mind. Oh, no. I, I know. It's totally, I mean, it's totally a very quick story. And when I was doing my juggling, I had this thing where I ended up in some senior homes to do shows. And I had this thing where they wanted me to help do exercises with folks. And I had this thing that was like a streamer, paper on the end of a stick that you could like, and I called it air painting, but it was like to just move your arms. Well, at this one place, this guy picked up this streamer, and he was just going wild with it. And um, all of a sudden, one of the nurses came in, and she said, oh, Mr. Jones, same thing with Mr. Jones, oh, you're conducting your orchestra? And it turned out he had been an orchestra leader all his life. And so somehow getting the stick in his hand took him back to doing that. Mm-hmm. And he went off doing it, you know. And um, you know, it was just a, a moment to me that just made me think, wow, okay, here we are, and who, nobody knew who this guy was in this room. You know, he was just here. And... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, your poetry, there's a lot of emotion involved. Do you think someone can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? Uh, do you think, sorry, you garbled a little bit. You said that okay, you know, I think that some people could be called a poet without the emotions. Well, do, I, do you think that someone can be called a poet? if they do not feel yep. strong emotions? Um, I, well, again, it's all defined on what people call poetry. I mean, if, there's also, I mean, if you're alive, you have emotions. You might want to say, I don't, I, you know, I'm not affected by anything, or I'm strong. Most men sometimes, will, you know, I, you know, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. It's like, well, but if you're alive and you suddenly see, you know, a bird or a butterfly or some, wild, you know, great colors in the fall and it just brings some feeling into you, I mean, I think for you to write and to express yourself, you have to be in contact with your emotions and your feelings, whether, whether some people think those are the same, um, but you, you're, you're having experiences about the sunlight or something or how someone treated you or how you thought you should be treated and all of a sudden you can feel all those feelings. I mean, you know, I'm sure when your father said that to you, there was all kinds of emotions that ran through you. Oh, wow. you, know, will he ever, will, you know, will he ever see me? Does he even know who I am? Does, yes. You know, am I yes. a failure? Was I thinking I was a failure? Yes. You know, exactly we, we, what we, I thought. We could, exactly what I thought. And I really heard. We, you know, we could, do a whole, we could do a whole program on just that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, you'd ha- you would have had to be comatose to not, experience, you know, wow, this is my dad who, you know, I mean, I had that with my parents even when I was a juggler. They didn't quite get it. It wasn't, you know, it's not like you went to high school and, the, you know, the guidance counselor said, oh, do you want to be a juggler? It's like, you know, that wasn't mm-hmm. in the list, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Especially growing up in Buffalo, New, you know, growing up in Buffalo, New York, it was, 
you were going to, before the steel plant, plants closed down, you were going to work in the steel plant. There was no reason even to go to college. It was assumed everyone goes to work in the steel plant. So, mm. um, you know, it was out of their context then once I started being a juggler and I was doing it for so long, and they were at, almost it was because they didn't even know what to tell their friends or something. You know, mm-hmm. what are we going to, you know, should we tell you? Well, we'll tell them you're an artist, I guess, or something. You know what I mean? Um, wow. But even that is, but even that is pretty dubious. I mean, people don't consider artist a, a career necessarily, or they think that, you know, I can make a living at that. Or, you know, a lot of times you hear the statement that poetry helps the voiceless find a voice. All right. What do you, is that true to you? Do you think that's true? That it gives the voiceless a voice? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, well, this goes back to us talking about what was different about the beats or whatever. So, I mean, we're in a different age. I mean, you and I being close in age, we're yes. in a different time period. I heard this thing recently where it was like, we only had radio, and if the Beatles or the Stones or, um, you know, Freddie Rich, whoever was on there, <laughs> yes, was, was uh, the ones we listened to. That's all we thought existed. Mm-hmm. Today, mm-hmm. you can get online, and you're hearing somebody who recorded something in their house, where they, you know, are, and and they may now have a million followers, where they. Mm-hmm. You know, they get brought in because they, you know, some company thought they were the music we should hear. Or, I mean, I heard this about a, a person. They had, a, I think it was in the New Yorker. One of the magazines did a thing about who's, you know, what's good number of books that a poet sells. And I think after they found the, you know, you know, the top MFA program, the top magazines, the top publisher, they found this. Uh, a poet who had sold, you know, 20,000 copies. And so they go, well, is that, is that, is that the route you need to go to get all those stamps to sell 20,000 copies? So then they went to sales and they found this person who sold a hundred thousand. And who is this person? Oh, they live at their parents' house in the basement and they had a blog and they had a blog and they had over 300,000 people that listened to them and they told them they were going to put their first couple of years out in the book and it sold a hundred thousand copies. Oh, wow. And they got the book, book, and they said, well, the book's okay. And then they went to the people and said, well, why did you buy this book? And they said, well, we like it. I mean, what do you mean, why did we buy it? We like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their question was, are we in a time period now where, and many people say this, that you're creating your own audience. You know, if mm-hmm. you can get out there and if people can, and you can resonate with what people, what you're saying, and that builds, then, you know, you create your audience. You're not suddenly, there is no publishing company who's going to give you the deal they give michelle obama or something because you're yes. unknown nobody's going to pay you for your book no one's going to and I, the only and i i only got the seven books because i had gotten rejected from trying to get my books published a little bit or i was trying to figure out how to do that but from the story i told you of going to austin once i was there and i was coming off stages and people were asking me for a book and i thought well i'm going to be doing this i'm going to be able to sell books they want books mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that encouraged me to publish it. And then, you know, that whole thing changed with technology and print on demand. And then if you knew how to use a computer and put together a book and buy ISB numbers, there you were, you were published. Wow. And, you know, so for some reason, some period of time, there was the poo-pooing of self-publishing. And, 
But, you know, if you really look at how many other – Whitman, all these people were self-published. Nobody was publishing them. They got out their work, and their, their work spread, and people liked them, and their word of mouth took them – you know, they got known. Wow. You know, we've reached my favorite part of the program. I view it as being a mini, M-I-N-I, poetry concert. And this is your opportunity, my friend, to share two or three poems back to back. No questions from me in the middle of each poem. So you're on the stage, bud, and you you know the stage. So two or three of your works. Okay, uh, this is going to – I better pick some good ones, I think. <laughs> All your work is good. All your work. I am really enjoying you being with me. I really am. Thank you. Thank you. I'm appreciating this also. Okay, so uh, these are uh, – one's kind of a little long and one's a little short, so I'll just okay. do two. Um, so, or, you know, we'll see. You can let me know in terms of time. Uh, the first yeah, one is we're called good. Uh, we're good. The first one is called Flashcards. Um, and I performed this with this band that I was doing. I keep calling it a band. I think musicians that are uh, willing to work in a project that's combining improvisational music and my pieces. And this is called Flashcards. Flashcards, the height of technology when I was growing up. It was a paper card with a question on one side. The answer was on the other. Five plus five. Nine? No. Twelve? No. Thirty-five? No, Johnny, you're guessing. It's ten. And they would show the other side. There was ten. It would be nice to have flashcards for Congress. What's environmental protection? Cutting trees? No. Fossil fuels? No. Corporate immunity? No. Some parents would try to practice with their children. A caring mom who doesn't want you to fail gives you hints, the answers, and then they all wondered why you were failing in school. At school, that's where there was the flashcards really did their devastation, would inflict their trauma. The teacher would hold up the card for Billy, the boy before you. His flashcard was nine multiplied by four. Thirty-six, Billy said proudly. I was next. I was ready. I had been looking up the answers on the multiplication tables, and I had the answers written on my hand. The teacher turned to me, held up the next card, and it was, what is 4,872,490 divided by 5 sixteenths? Happening once, you could say, ha, ha. Every freaking time, this is the kind of flashcard you get. Every freaking time, no one seems to understand the trauma. All the therapists couldn't stop laughing. Start to ask yourself, were you exaggerating the humiliation, the failure, feeling doomed, cursed, singled out? When I tried to explain this to my granddaughter, that I was asked, What's 4,872,490 divided by 5 sixteenths? They held up their phone smiling, saying, It's 15,591,968. Did you forget to charge your phone, Grandpa? I asked, Could they look up who invented flashcards? Are they still alive? Where do they live? She showed me two streets over. Maybe in the emotional state I was in, I shouldn't have gone over. I told the judge later, 
I just wanted to talk to them. How was I to know? And when I op- they opened up the door and smiled, and then they pulled out a flashcard that asked, what's 6,500,042 multiplied by 800.167422? I just want you to know, having restrained meditation time, heavy narcotics, and this ankle bracelet that administers electric shocks, I have calmed down and can almost see it as a funny thing than to anyone. To be honest, I still ask, why me? Why me? The time I met Hunter Thompson. I met Hunter Thompson in a small gas station, Hunter's Gas. I had broken down there. So I got to hang out with him for a few days. He told me how everyone thought he was Hunter S. Thompson, the famous writer, especially since he had up on his sign quotes by Hunter S. Thompson. Today's was, buy the ticket, take the ride. Except this town wasn't on a bus route, so I was stuck there, broken down. It felt like I had entered the twilight zone feeling like each day a new quote was a personal message to me. When the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Hunter admitted he was cashing in on people thinking he was Hunter S. Thompson, selling them T-shirts, coffee cups, taking pictures. He admitted it helped him sell a lot of gas. He hated being asked all the time about the drugs and alcohol. Did he have any to sell when this was a dry county? The sign read, I hate to advocate drugs, alcohol, and violence, or insanity to anyone, but they've always worked for me. Once the part arrived for my van, I had to find someone who could put it in. I had no tools with me. Hunter just sold gas and Hunter S. Thompson paraphernalia. That day the sign read, a man who procrastinates in his choosing will inevitably have his choices made for him by circumstance. So I kicked into action, hitchhiked rides to find tools or someone who could help. I was going down blind alleys. There were dead ends. When I thought I had reached my breaking point, the sign read, the edge. There is no honest way to explain it because the only people who really know where it is are the ones who have gone over. That day a woman showed up in a van She had all the tools, could fix anything anywhere, and she started on my van. The sign that day read, I have a theory that the truth is never told during 9 to 5. I learned a lot from her. We talked about everything. One of of our heated discussions was about government. We looked up at the sign that day, and it said, In a closed society where everyone is guilty, the only crime is getting caught. In a world of thieves, the only final sin is stupidity. She had my van running better than when it was new. She wanted to take it for a test run. That day the sign read, faster, 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 until the thrill of speed overcomes the fear of death. I was glad to get back to Hunter's alive. I could hit the road again. I stood outside of Hunter's after filling up my tank and I bought a coffee cup. 
You can always use a coffee cup. Watching the frenzy inside, people trying to get pictures with Hunter, thinking he was Hunter S. Thompson. That day on the sign read, for every moment of triumph, for every instance of beauty, many souls must be trampled. I left there thinking, maybe I'll read some Hunter S. Thompson. I guess I'll put it on the list. Wow. And I could read one last one, which is the last one in the book. Fantastic. Which is, which is who are you? Mm-hmm. Who are you? A simple question. You can answer it many ways. You could give your name, some award you won. You didn't know that when you walked into the room, everyone in the room doesn't know who you are either. You can't blame them since you don't know who you are. How could they know who you are? You've had this idea that you were following a calling to create who you think you are. Then you graded yourself on did you create that persona that you thought was the real you. Then one day you're sitting in a restaurant when a little girl sitting at the table next to you turns, looks you straight in the eyes and says, you don't know who you are, do you? And pauses. You're never going to find out, probably. And then turned back to her mother, who was trying to explain the universe. You were stunned, left speechless, and suddenly it all felt meaningless. All the work creating this persona, was it for nothing? When the waiter brought the check, it all became clear. You have done a good job at selling your persona. You could pay the bill and even leave a tip. Oh, wow. Paul. Michael. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Um, well, I think it's kind of funny coming from a background where I couldn't spell, I couldn't read till maybe fifth or sixth grade. Oh, wow. Um, a bunch of things, uh, and that now I'm communicating and people feel like I'm communicating things or I'm making them laugh or I'm giving them hope or I'm expressing what they feel needs to be expressed. So in that way, I don't know whether there's some plan. I followed what mattered to me, and here I am. What surprises you, my friend, about being a poet? What's the what's the, what's the first word? What's the what? What surprises you? Surprises me. Um, well, I guess what surprises me is realizing how I can have, of, say, a low self-esteem about my own writing or can I communicate, and then hearing people's reaction to me that I'm communicating things that they say they can't or that they couldn't have done it that well or they didn't realize it until I said it. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, you know, you realize the power of that. Um, and so, uh, and, you know, when I, when I read about poets, like I said, being arrested in different countries or jailed because their poem was, uh, you know, uh, they thought it was, I don't know, going to change too many people or something. I mean, I, I read this sci-fi book by a person who handed in their book in Russia, and it took 35 years for him to get his back his original book because when he got it back, he refused to sign it saying, this isn't my book. 
you know, I didn't, I don't, this doesn't even look like my book. And I wanted to read it for the purpose of like, what was in the book that was so, you know, you know, there was, and, and obviously in many countries, especially in Russia, you had to do sci-fi because you couldn't talk about the real government. So you talked about some fantasy land that, you know, the government was doing such and such, but if they thought it was too close to what they were doing, they didn't even want it in the sci-fi book. Right. Um, right. So you it makes you realize, wow, you're that worried about all of us acknowledging that we know we're being screwed or something. I mean, it's like I'm amazed now. You know, it's uh, too bad in terms of how divided our country is and and how we got lost in this person who just lied so much and so is true. still lying. And you know, yes. and no matter what, no matter what the courts or anybody says that that's not true, he keeps protesting the lie. Yes. And some people still believe it. And so you go, well, okay, so the power of these words, or that's where I sometimes may get discouraged, like, can the power of truth override that, you know? Can it, can it actually break through that, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it does for some people, but... And so, I mean, I don't, you know, I can't, you know, I could go on with that, but in terms of time. But, yeah, I mean, so I, I think there is power in that because it can break through that sometimes or people can say, or, you know, that's why governments are worried about it. They don't want people to speak the, or they don't want them to play their songs and encourage people to maybe have a union or whatever it might be, you know? You know, we've reached the end of our poetic journey, my friend, but to me, Oh no, oh no, come on, oh no. Oh, no. I was just kidding, wrong. Michael, I, know, I, can Michael, tell. I have I can seven tell. books. I have seven books, Michael. I mean, I mean, we can, I mean, can, I You'll thought be this was like two. an all night sleepover or something. You know what I mean? I thought it was like this. I'll, I'll invite you back for part two. <laughs> Later in the year, you can come. I think you are absolutely incredible. You're an amazing man. Thank you, Michael. And you speak with such wisdom. I, I was listening to every word. Okay, good people, I listen to everybody in terms of every word, but I was really listening to you <laughs> as you shared your, your thoughts about different things. Wow. Well, thank you, Michael. You thank you for up. this opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I appreciate that. And, well, um... <laughs> where can folks buy Swimming with the Sharks? Um, if they, if, uh, they'll find all kinds of things. If you go to uh, Human Error Publishing, which is H-U-M-M-A-N uh, Error, E-R-R-O-R, publishing.com, you'll have links to all the stuff that I do, my poetry, my publishing. Um, there's over 50, 60 books there, people I've published already. There's a link to my personal page, which then, excuse me, takes you to all my books. Uh, those on Amazon can buy it there. Uh, I'm on Kofi. There's a bundle set there where you can get three books for uh, the price of 10 each instead of 15 at Amazon. You know, just, just check out all those different things. If you, uh, there's a YouTube channel that there's a bunch of stuff. I have a pay-per-view channel with uh, some of the oh, concerts wow. with me doing my poetry in the band. People could check out. Those links are all there on the humanairpublishingsite.com. What's next for you, my friend? Where do you go from here creatively? 
I don't know, Michael. I was told this was the top of the heap, so now I'm a little you know, I'm not sure. Oh, it is. Your check is in the mail. So bet you threw that in there because it's all downhill from here, Michael. It's all down here. I'm, 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 I'm going to go back and apply for the bag and groceries. You know bag and groceries. Um, hey, my dad would say I should go with you. <laughs> Make a real living. Make a real living. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, I, I, I um, real briefly in that, I think we're in a tough time now because COVID is everyone's tired of it, um, but yeah, people sure. numbers are back up. Uh, people aren't necessarily secure going out, so it's complicated doing this tightrope between trying to. I mean, I'm a, I'm a promoter, so I created festivals and. Um, you know, so I, I've been, a couple of my festivals have been shut down for two years, and mm-hmm. I still do monthly readings, um, but, you know, and the numbers keep going up and down of whether or not people will come out to them. Um, so, you know, it's it's a tricky time for anybody who's a performer or for you. I mean, yeah, and, and you and I both know, that's why it's, it's great to have these kinds of opportunities, because nobody really knows. They might hear about a book, but unless they hear the pieces, Yes. To say, oh, I like this. I like what I'm hearing. Then they may think mm-hmm. about buying the book, or they may say, okay, mm-hmm. I like it, but I don't want to buy the book. And, I, and we're living in a in a time period where there's so much stuff that, on one of my books where I do have it online, everyone looks at the free parts and that's it, and they don't buy anymore. Yes. And but they look at all the free parts, mm-hmm. so they obviously like it enough to go through all of them. Um, mm-hmm. But so it's trying to uh, from here. It's the continual navigating of. Uh, trying to be true to myself, trying mm-hmm. to keep getting out my writing, trying to keep help supporting other writers who live near me and us doing things together to keep promoting writing and encouraging new young writers to speak out and use their voice. And like I said, I, I do see it as an important political act of having people to feel confident in speaking what they feel because that's the only way a democracy will work is if people have that clarity and strength and also wanting to work collectively, not just um, imply that we're in some sporting event that it's my team or no team or something, you know? You know, what I like about your writing is that it's very visual. I can see it. I can see it. To me, it was almost like listening to you. It was like watching a movie on HBO. (laughs) I mean, the way you laid it out <laughs> on the big screen, <laughs> I just, I was wrapped in it, man. I really was. <laughs> I like the way you write. <laughs> I do. I really do. Thanks. Well, hopefully another couple hundred thousand people will like it, too, and I'll, I'll, be able, I'll, I'll be able to buy a few sandwiches. You know what I mean? Uh, think of it that way, folks. Any book you buy, any book you buy, I, I can buy a sandwich. You know, so help, help feed an artist. We've only got seven minutes, but I've got to ask this. You speak with such conviction. What do you believe is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? Uh, there are two different things for sure. Um, uh, there, I mean, yes and no, I hear the story in my mind. So I put it down on the words, but Mm -hmm. so many times when I'm standing in front of an audience or I'm reading out loud, like even reading this today, I I changed a few lines or a word because it wasn't coming, it wasn't coming out how it is in the book. Yes. Um, and it, and it's, and it's not to, 
be down on, oh, now I have that in the book. And I read no, it works in the book, um, mm-hmm. but it, it doesn't work speaking. And, I, you know, this is where a lot of poets and people get discouraged because sometimes, you know, I don't know why, why this happens, but in some MF programs, not all, a lot of the poets sound the same. Or mm-hmm. someone says, oh, I guess they're doing a poem because they have their poet voice on or something. Mm-hmm. And so I think the real tricky part, the real tricky part is it, it's complicated because you are, you hear other people, but you're really trying to find your own voice. And you're trying mm-hmm. to find out the voice of what is the poem. How is the poem trying to be told? You know, like in some of mine, there's two different characters. So am I giving a sense that you're listening to the other character or you're not or I'm changing that or... And so, you know, and have to go with that. And, and as, as the person's screaming, are they whispering? I mean, because it is much more like a story if you're taking in much more. I mean, that's where, you know, we had this conversation about, you know, you can write the book, and now it's the reader decides all that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a whole mm-hmm. different skill than once you decide to take your poem, story, emotion to the public are you suddenly talking about your dead dog while you're laughing? I mean, you know, it could be, it could happen, I suppose. Be, uh, and, and, and so everybody might think what's going on. You're weird and maybe we should not meet you afterwards. Or, um, but, um, you know, so, excuse me, I think there's all of that that's going on, that, that voice, all right. if, you're true to your, if you're true to yourself, you'll find that voice and that voice will tell you how to be because of the work. Well, here's a question that you could answer for next time you're here, and hopefully we'll come back. When you write, who's in charge, you or the poem? All right, think about that. Well, one. When, you have, <laughs> when you have many person, when you have many personalities, I guess we'll have to ask this personality. <laughs> think about that one. So when you come back, that'll be the first thing that I ask you. All right. <laughs> I want to thank Paul Richmond for being being with me tonight. It's been an incredible hour and a half. I love this show. Paul, man, you the man. You the man. You are the man. So I want to thank you again and our listening audience. And as I share with you every time we're together, that poetry rings somewhere throughout the land. Good night, Paul. Good night, Michael. Thank you. All right. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.